0: Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. All right, let's get started. Before we pray this morning, I'm I'm going to read a long passage from Genesis 17 as we get started. If you picked up your insert today, you know that we'll be talking about chapter 28 of the Confession of Baptism. And I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14 as we begin. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be a f- the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be, your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you <coughs> throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your descendants after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even in even in this even in this passage that discusses so much that is unfamiliar to us, and that is absent from our daily practice and experience before You, we already have learned so much. Heavenly Father, in Your words to Abram, You did not; uh, there was nothing for him to do until You had had Your say, until You had laid out everything that You were going to do uh, do for him, and it was only in response to that that His actions followed. And Lord, we are all here, not because we chose to be, but because you drew us. And Lord, we praise you for your goodness, for your goodness, which we would not have chosen in our blindness and our error. And we thank you that we have received, uh, we thank you that we have received the smile of your presence already this morning. Lord, bless us as we consider consider the first of your two sacraments this morning. Uh, Lord, be present here. Lord, be present here and teach our hearts. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So remember last week, we discussed the sacraments in general. Uh, Andrew was teaching that lesson, and as you probably noticed throughout that, it's very hard to talk about the sacraments in general without getting into the details of the sacraments in particular. Uh, I had to change; I had to pull out a bunch of stuff that Andrew had already talked about and try to find new things to discuss this morning. I'm going to try not to step on anybody's toes for the Lord's Supper next week and keep it focused on baptism for now. What is, but let's review for just a minute, what is a sacrament? What's a sacrament? How many sacraments are there? Two. Two. And we're talking about one, and the other one is the Lord's table. So today we're talking about baptism. But what is a sacrament in general? A sign and a seal. seal. That's right. Good good simple words, but what do they mean? What is a sign? Points Points to what? Points to reality. Points to the reality. So it is not the reality itself, instead points to the reality. that's right. And what is a seal? Is it, it's a covenant? It's related to the covenant, but it is not the covenant itself. So the, it is, uh, inst- So it is tied to God's covenant for us, but it's not the covenant itself. Notice, that even in the passage read this morning, God establishes his covenant, and then he establishes a sacrament. To be a seal of that, he, when he talk, when he when he gives the practice of circumcision to Abram, so the covenant the covenant is the real thing. The covenant is the thing that the sign points to, and this and the sign is also a seal. It also marks, it also provides a visible mark on the person who is a member of the covenant. It serves as a mark of authenticity and ownership and membership in the covenant. So what we talked about, so in the passage that we read from Genesis 17, we talked, about the fir- we talked about the first sacrament that was given, and that to Abram, when God entered into covenant with him and said, now that, you, now that I have made this covenant with you, here is what you shall do to mark yourself and set your, yourself and your descendants apart uh, for me, to show that you are mine now, because I've taken you and made you my own. And that is, uh, so with that, let's read chapter one of the Westminster Confession. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. Which sacrament is, by Christ's own appointment, to be continued in his church until the end of the world. One of the best examples of this we see is in, is in Acts chapter 2. And remember the context of Acts chapter 2. This is, Acts chapter 2 is primarily given up to Peter's first sermon. Uh, Peter's first sermon. Peter, who could never seem to get his words together, who could never seem to say the right thing at the right time, all of a sudden launches into the, one of the most powerful sermons that we have recorded in the New Testament. Because what has happened just before is that the Holy Spirit has come. And the promise that God gave that these untrained, unlearned fishermen would suddenly turn the world on end because of their, because of their words and their prayers. And we get the first taste of it in Peter's sermon, Acts chapter 2. Uh, it's, we don't have time to go through the whole thing, so we'll just look at chap, uh, Acts 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, when they heard Peter's sermon, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's the first thing to see. Just as, just as God created, just as God formed the church through Abram with the formation of the covenant in the Old Testament, what we see after, immediately after this is records of those who received into the church following Peter's sermon. Uh, it was about you know, several, thousand, several thousand men, women, and children came into the burgeoning New Testament church after Peter preached. And they were entered, and the, the outward sign of them coming into the church was baptism. And that's the first thing to remember. Baptism is not just this thing Christians do. And we need to be very careful with this because there's a lot of... There's a lot of practice There's you'll see a lot of baptisms at revivals and crusades and student uh, student outreach events and various other things that Christians come to do that are very valuable in themselves. But it's never there is no but the virtue of baptism is not in the water that's given. It's in the faith. It is in the faith that receives it, and most importantly, it's in the body, uh, the body that you become part of through it. Baptism is entry into the visible church. Remember we talked about the visible and invisible church a few weeks ago when we talked about the nature of the church. The invisible church is that is the church as God sees it. It is everyone elect, everyone that he has chosen into covenant with. But the visible church is called that because it's the church that we see. It's everyone I'm looking at right now, it's everyone you see around you. And we're all here, we're all here because we were baptized into this fellowship. And it's also important to remember you're not just a member of this church, of Trinity Presbyterian Church. But baptism is also the entry into the whole visible church. Throughout the world, we, we talked a few weeks ago about the marks of a true church, what that is. Well, right now, throughout the world, you know, there are people meeting and gathering in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship him faithfully. And so you're not just members of this body. You're members of that whole body that gathers, you know, that's gathering to worship and to repent and to believe week in and week out. And baptism is the first step into that. Baptism is it uh, is also the like circumcision before, it is also the mark, uh is also the mark, it's the outward mark of faith upon one to indicate that he or she has been committed to the Lord and set apart. Now as we think now I've made this point a lot of times, so I'm gonna do it again. When we think about circumcision, we think about we think about you have to think about blood. It was painful, it hurt, and it was bloody just like everything in the Old Testament. Why was there so much blood in the Old Testament? Because the wages of sin is death? Yeah, that's right. And so what did they see a lot of in the Old Testament? A lot of blood, a lot of death. Yep, a lot of blood that had to be shed. But now what do we see in baptism? Is there any blood in baptism? How so? No, no, no! bring it. Yeah, but, I mean, like you're being in the Yes. Like kind of under the earth. Right. That's interesting because that's almost exactly the, the way that Calvin would describe baptism. Calvin, so Calvin, ironically enough, we're gonna, So we're, I'm going to skip ahead of my notes here for a minute. Calvin actually liked, uh, he believed in baptism by immersion. So actually putting someone under the water to signify our burial with Christ and the death of our sins and his death. And then bringing that person up out of the water to signify the resurrection that we now have in him. and we see And we see that here and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, but you know the very thing you said is we are washed in the blood of Christ and that's and but and so what we are washed with is not the water of baptism but the blood of Christ that's already been shed been shed once and it's in that's the that forms the regeneration that baptism signifies for us now so Zandy, did you have your hand up She started saying what I was going to say How dare she what nerve <laughs> That's right. All right, so we've already talked about this, but then section two, talks about, uh, section two talks about the element of baptism. An element is simply the stuff, the stuff that's used in the sacrament. And the element in baptism is water. The outward element to be used in this sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, by a minister of the gospel, lawfully called thereunto. Now, um, I've been traveling a lot, so I didn't have all my ducks in a row this morning. My plan at this point was to pull out my visual aid. I was going to pull out a squirt gun. Uh, my kids have some big ones. They're really, really nice. They're way better than what we had when I was a kid. So my inner eight-year-old was looking for an excuse to bring a squirt gun to church this morning. And I missed it. Can you believe it? But the question I was going to ask is I was, to, I was going to wave around and branch it up here. And I was going to ask the question, what if, you know, what if I pointed my squirt gun at, at Mr. Bragg over here and squirt him right between the eyeballs? Would that, and would that be a baptism? No. no. Why not? not I'm not an ordained pastor. Okay. What if I gave it to I'm Andrew? What if I gave it to Andrew and he squirted Nathan through it between the eyes? Baptism, so. Oh, really? <laughs> Why not? The main, main, let me clarify right now, the main reason I'm not going to shoot Nathan this morning is that he and Samuel and Matthew would show up next Sunday with their own guns and it would get ugly. (laughs) (laughs) What's that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, I'm not going to start any arms races here. So, but the point, um, so the point is, of course, that baptism is not what we make it, it's what God says it is, just like anything else. In worship and that's what we begin to see and that's what we begin to see here in section 2 as the confession summarizes God's commands about how baptism should be administered who instituted baptism who said do this who said you should keep doing this Christ obviously or we wouldn't be doing it but who, who where do we first encounter baptism in the New Testament it wasn't Jesus baptizing people no somebody was doing it somebody baptized Jesus who baptized Jesus John the Baptist, the guy with the in his name. Yeah, exactly right. So what was John doing? Jesus hadn't instituted it yet. We don't have the institution of baptism until the Great Commission, after the resurrection. After what after everything that baptism signifies has been done, then Jesus says, Go and do this. So what was John doing? Have you ever thought about that? Jamie, you're whispering, is there something I need to hear? Yeah, I was wondering it too. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Have, like baptism is not thing. So they've got mikvah oats, which were that was a big word, you're gonna have to say that again. <laughs> <laughs> mikvah oats, that like mikvah oats, that's the plural mikveh as the singular. Mm-hmm. So like they were baptizing people already, it was like a part of ceremonial like getting cleanliness back. Mhm. Um, Mm-hmm. In the temple, so they got a few in the like where the old people used to be, and then they have a few like around, like in different villages and somewhere where the synagogue was. So, like, it wasn't a new practice, and you could also dump objects, like, if an object had become ceremonially unclean, you could bring it to the priest and he would dump it. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't, I've never understood, and they can never explain to me, like, why, like, how that connected to what John the Baptist was doing. Right. Yeah, that's true there was a lot there were ceremonial washings throughout the old testament and then there were some new ones introduced in between the testaments as well uh, which is where my research said that this came from in particular yeah um, so what i recommend rc sproul on this he has an excellent commentary on the westminster confession called um, truths we confess big thick book um, but very, very helpful reference as you're working through these things. And he had a helpful explanation because, you know, like you all, I often wonder, it's like, well, what was John doing? Because even, um, even as we get later on, in Acts 19, there's actually a contrast between the, the baptism of John and the baptism uh, ordained by, instituted by Christ. In Acts 19, it says, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about twelve men. So we have this baptism. We have what is called John's baptism, and then we have the baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus practiced here. And we see the immediate the immediate distinction made is that the, the Holy Spirit that was poured upon the church at Pentecost at the beginning of the Book of Acts hadn't happened to these hadn't happened to these God fearing Jews yet, until Paul talked to them, baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And all of a sudden, the Spirit comes in just a minute. So obviously there's that, obviously there's distinction. Obviously there's something different because the Lord was pleased to honor the baptism done in Jesus' name. But the time for John's baptism uh, had ended. So as I understand it, in between the end of the Old Testament record and before the beginning, the opening of the Gospels of the birth of Christ, there was a period about 400 years. And you can see that in the end of, you can see that you can see that described in the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi when it speaks about the time that's coming, the you know the era of silence from the Lord that will come for the next four hundred years. During that period, that's a very interesting period of history which we don't have time to go into. There were a lot of good things that happened there. There were a lot of glorious things that the Lord was still at work, even in His struggling church in the nation of Israel. Uh, and then there were a lot of new and there were a lot there were new ceremonies and practices that began at that time as well. It was during that time. During that time there were a lot of gentiles who wanted to come into the church or into the nation of Israel who wanted to come to I'm going to use the term Judaism very very loosely not in the sense we think of it today but in the sense of Old Testament the Old Testament faith being practiced before the coming of Christ as God's people were still looking forward to the Messiah. There were gentiles who said we want in. We want a part of that. And so obviously they had to um, they had to go through a ceremony. Uh, what they would do um, what they would do is repent of their sins, the men would be circumcised, and then they would perform, and then they would have a ritual cleansing uh, as they washed away, and this was to signify washing away the sin of the world they were coming out of as they came into the covenant community. All right, so this was for, it was a practice created for the Gentiles in particular to help them come away from the world, to help them cleanse themselves of the world and come into the church um, before, right in the period leading up to the time Christ came. So when John came, he was doing something that was familiar, but what he did was revolution but what he did was stirring things up because he was looking at his fellow Jews, he was looking at the people of the nation of Israel and said, "You be baptized. You have this ritual cleansing done. You wash of your sins." And they're like, "What? What? We're Jews. We're already in, buddy. We don't need this." He said, "Yes, you do. Yes, you do because your sins have corrupted you just as much as the Gentiles around you and you need to repent. And Because and remember that was John's message was the was repent and believe repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Yes, Elizabeth. To John's baptism, the baptism of yes, exactly, exactly. It's pr- it's a baptism in preparation. We receive a baptism of fulfillment, of completion, of you know of forgiveness of sins, representing our forgiveness of sins. John didn't have that to offer yet. Because the source of rep- the source of forgiveness was just coming on the scene, so but he was saying, "Prepare yourself to receive that." So repent, um, repent, and be baptized unto repentance. Would there's, would there's Gentiles, would Samaritan? Samaritans would have been included. Now this was anybody who wasn't Jewish. Uh, Gentiles means the same thing it has always meant. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. You're a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. Same thing. Same thing back then. And so that was stir- and so that stirred up the nation of Israel, you know, that stirred up the nation of Israel. Because they said, well, look, we don't need this. And he said and John said, yes you do, because everything is about to change and everything you've been looking forward to is about to come. And so it's very interesting. It's very interesting that Christ came and received this baptism, this incomplete, this partial, expectant baptism that John was practicing. He received it on himself. And that was part of his work of identifying with us. In our sin. He received this mark on himself. So, and this was also where, um, and so when Christ ordained baptism, it seems that, you know, it seems that he took ritual, it seems that he was taking something that was, as Kendall pointed out, it's not unfamiliar there were ritual washings in the old testament that we can look at and there were practices introduced in between the testaments john was practicing a ritual washing with uh, er, using it to spur on his fellow countrymen to repent and prepare for christ's return and through it all it was water that was to be received and so when christ instituted it and christ instituted it he used this he said use the same element but the difference at he point was he tied it to himself now it was not about you and your sins now it was about now it was about the redemption that he had purchased. All right, so chapter three, now we get into the fun stuff. Section three of chapter 28 says dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. This is a very Presbyterian, this is a very Presbyterian section. So we've also, um, if you've been here at Trinity long enough, uh, Lord willing, you've seen some baptisms. You've seen some. You've seen some children. You've seen some children re- receive the sign and seal of the covenant, and you've seen some adults. And uh, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about why we do the we'll talk about those two things here in a minute. But think about the think about what you've seen. Uh, Andrew will take the water in his hand, and he'll you know he'll upend it on top of the person to be baptized. Let the water fall on their face, and then place a hand as he speaks the words of you know, speaks the words that Christ instituted, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now that's different from other churches. Other churches would have uh, many other churches would have a would have a font or uh, what I in my ignorance used to call a little pool up in the front of the sanctuary. And that would and if, if there were baptism, then that would be filled with water and people would, as Calvin would, would have practiced, the person would be immersed under the water and then brought back up. So why why the differences in mode? Is one of those wrong and one of those right? The passage the you like Mm-hmm. You're getting on that. To the w okay. All right. It's also a uh, it's a matter of history. Many churches didn't have these economic expenses hmm. to be able to build the pool and to keep it sanitary and clean to back in the middle ages. So the architecture did not that's why sprinkler came That's an interesting point. Okay. Uh, you know you didn't you did not want to uh, the economy, you, yeah. uh, if you had that, it was a to be able to it. <laughs> Yeah. So that's interesting. All right, so Nathan said that you know practical limitations meant you know sprinkling was more convenient, more effective. Um Greg's pointing back to the original Greek, which seems to indicate to sprinkling. We certainly see sprinkling and pouring a lot in the Old Testament. Do we have any clear example of how baptism, how much water was actually used in a baptism? Sprinkle, uh, okay. But I'm looking at the New Testament now. There's 12, to th- I think there's like 12 to 13 examples of baptism in the New Testament. Do any of them show how much water was used? What did John the Baptist do? How do you know? Okay, what does that what does that signify? A lot of water. It is a lot of water. Yeah, in an arid part of the world. Yeah, that doesn't mean he immersed. Doesn't mean he sprinkled. I I know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, all right. So, what does that teach us? What does that teach us about how the water was applied? Granted, don't know. Don't know. yeah, yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Was that a baptism? What Jesus said to the the blind man. Elizabeth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you can come up from a river. <laughs> yeah. Are you getting the feeling this is, I mean, all right, so obviously this is a contentious issue for Christians. This is also an issue where the Scripture has not spoken clearly. Not, or I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. It's not spoken definitively. There's not a verse you can say, I like, there it is. Somebody took water, put it on the head. That's how we're supposed to do it. Or there, look over there. There's somebody who held his nose and went, had, was pushed under and brought up. That's how we're supposed to do it. Those passages don't exist. I mean, you all have hit on a lot of the classic ones. <clears throat> I mean, um, you know, Kendall po- made the point of people standing, you know, seeing murals and depiction, early Christian depictions of people staying in the water, which certainly happened. We still don't have any pictures of anybody being, uh, I'm sorry, I always use the word dunked, that's, that's not respectful of my Baptist brethren, immersed under the water. Um, we don't have, you know, we, we see it a lot, we see sprinkling, we see pouring, we see dipping, we see a lot of different things throughout history. mm-hmm yeah, so because we don't have explicit instruction on in this let me well there's there's we're running out of time so let me say several things about this um interesting an interesting passage to read on this is Leviticus fourteen because you actually see you see a lot of sprinkling this is a, it's about a it's about the ceremony required for cleansing a leper, for a, you know, for a man or woman being cleansed of leprosy, and what was to be done. There is an interesting point where it says you're supposed to take two birds, kill one bird, drain its blood into a bowl, and then in the Septuagint, in the Greek version, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it says to it uses the word baptizo that like Greg was mentioning to baptize the bird in the blood, the living bird in the blood of the dead bird. Now you cannot get enough blood out of a bird to stick a whole nother bird immersed in there. It would just be sticking a head and the you know top of the wings in. But it's also interesting you also see in this that uh, you also see in this that there is uh, there's one of those ritual cleansings, one of those ritual washings we talked about, as mentioned in this passage as well. It's not clear evident whether this was simply water on the head or whether this was actually taking a full-on bath, you know, full-on bath. Presbyterians have historically, uh, have historically um, seen, have historically observed a lot of sprinklings, a lot of pourings, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of minimal application of water, and from that have concluded that if the Lord wanted to change that practice, He would have made it evident. So instead, so see, and we're going to see this whole argument about covenant continuity, um, you know, again here in just a minute. But that's what have led Presbyterians to typically practice sprinkling in baptism. I think it's also worth, rem- worth remembering that while John the Baptist was in a river and he had access to vast quantities of water, in general, the Middle East, as well as many other parts of the world, um, struggled under water poverty. Water was scarce. And so, you know, it could be hard to get enough water to- together all the time. You know, if you were John, you were camped on a river, maybe, but others would have struggled to find that. They would have been desperate to have water to, to cook, to clean, to, to drink, and so it would have been very difficult to have, you know, to, to would have been very difficult to find large bodies of water required to this, which is something I think we should be aware of because that's true in the world today as well. If you're a Christian in Peru and you're living on the Amazon River, you got plenty of water. You know, have a big baptism Sunday, and pe- you know, you can immerse people all day long. But if you're in Central Africa, you don't have it. You're walking three miles a day, just enough for your family doesn't die of thirst that day. And so, what do you tell a Christian pastor there? You've got to fill up a pool. I think, you know, I think if somebody wants to do that, we should be gracious and understanding. Even those of us who believe, you know, scripture would have us to sprinkle, I think we should be very charitable toward those who want to immerse. And for those who want to immerse, I think they should be very charitable for those who just can't. We just can't. We should not deny the sign of the covenant just because we don't live in a place of water abundance. All right, Mike, make it quick. I'm running out of time. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, that's very interesting. All right, Bob. (laughs) Well, it happened under John, anyway. No, you cannot. All right, 10 minutes left, and we're just, getting to the, we're just getting to the complicated part. Section 4 says, Not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. So if you were reading, following along in Acts chapter two, when I read the conclusion of Peter's sermon, you might have noticed I stopped in verse thirty-eight and didn't read the rest of his thought in verse thirty-nine. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are as far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So after he said, so let me read the full, let me read the full thought together now that I'm now that I'm not messing around. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So, there's debate over the mode of baptism, about how we should baptize, and how much water, and how much of our how much water should be used, and how much of our body should be covered in it when it is done. But this is probably the this is probably the more contentious section of what we're looking at today, because now, because um, because Paedo and credo baptists, as they're called, would agree with this, uh, would agree with the first statement: those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, and we see that in Peter's word, repent and be baptized. So there's an act that we do first and then we receive baptism to enter into the visible church. So in other words, what what makes baptism effective? Is there magical power in the water that's administered? Is there some is there some authority given to the minister who's applying it to actually transfer, you know, transfer the covenant to a person? No. What makes baptism effective? The regenerate heart, the regenerate heart which it by the Holy Spirit, which baptism signifies, yeah, what it signifies. So, baptism is. We're going to talk, and you know, one of the last sections we'll talk about this. But baptism is effective by faith; it's received by faith. And so, and so, this is where, and so, this is where those who disagree on baptism agree: is that faith is required for baptism to be effective. So in the case of a new convert, a new believer who comes to faith in adulthood, then, you know, then it's very, very then everyone would agree. Then that man, that woman, you know, that older child needs to come before the church, profess his or her faith and then receive the sign of covenant, sign of the covenant, manifesting proclaiming the faith, you know, the faith that the Lord has given him. And then he and then from that he is accepted into the church. But we're in Trinity Presbyterian Church and we've seen some we've seen some really little kids get baptized here little kids who cannot are not able to repent uh, or profess faith at least not in words that we could understand. Why do we do that mm-hmm And Credo Baptists who don't believe in baptizing children, they don't believe in nurturing and raising their children for the Absolutely. Lord? Okay. do it, they just say, we will wait until they have a age at which they themselves can come Mm-hmm. But then the other side of that is if that child never makes it to that age. Mm-hmm. Well, be careful there. Yeah. hmm So baptism, you know, baptism is an important issue. Baptism is an important issue. I mean, obviously. It's instituted by Christ. It's, you know, it's a ceremony close to the heart, close to the heart of our faith. There is a fervent desire. So, pedo-baptists are those who believe would practice what we call covenant baptism. That is house, you know, that is, godly parents, and their children are baptized together. Credo baptists would say, no, this is an act that must wait until until the individual is ready to come and make profession of faith, to repent, and believe before it's come. What is the same for both is that God is that God's commands are precious, and we must be faithful to them. So I have, you know, I have dear friends who have, Caitlin and I have, have dear friends who we've, you know, we've, we've debated both sides of this with. And the thing, you know, and the thing to remember is that both, you know, both sides look at the other, you know, look at the other side of this debate and are concerned that God didn't command that, uh, or you're not, or you're ignoring something that God did command. And that's very, very serious. And so it's very, very, you know, this is an issue where, um, where t- emotions can run high, not because, and for genuine, Reasons, because people want to do what God commanded, and want to do it faithfully. Credo Baptists, those who be, you know, those who believe on waiting until someone's old enough to profess faith for receiving baptism, they're very, very concerned that parents who baptize their children will do it and think they're done. They're very concerned that you know that that um, that that, 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 that families will 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 presume upon the baptism. And membership in the covenant to do all the disciplining of their children needs to be done. They also rightly point out that baptismal regeneration is a huge error. There are those who believe that when you receive baptism, you are receiving not just a means of grace, uh, something that could be accepted by faith for our benefit, but it is grace itself. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that. There are seven sacraments of which baptism is one, are graces in and of themselves. So when you receive baptism, you're receiving a grace. And they, you know, they're, you know, so in in which case, you know, baptism, believe that baptism is saved, and a child, and someone who doesn't receive baptism will be lost, forever. Credo Baptists look at that and say we must avoid any such presumption. It is by faith alone that we can have. So now, in the midst of that, Pado Baptist, so, oh boy, three minutes. Those are legitimate criticisms. Pado Baptists need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of. You know, as Nathan pointed out, we don't just baptize children and say, oh, we're done. No, we do it, we do it because of that passage in Genesis 17 and then the, pa- and then the sermon of Peter, which echoes it. Because remember what God said. God didn't come to Abram and said, Abram, you're mine. Just you. I want you. No, he didn't. Who did he, what did he say to Abram? He wanted Abram and, and his descendants and everyone. And who received the sign of the covenant? Everybody of his household. And we, see, and we see that, we see a baptism, uh, we don't see, um, credo-baptists will rightly point out, we don't see any children baptized in the New Testament. But what we do see are households receiving baptism. And so in them, and so in that, we see a parallel, uh, pedo see a parallel between God, the administration of the covenant in the Old Testament and the New. God came to Abram and very clearly said, I want you and all your children, and to signify that, I want you to be circumcised, and all your kids, and all your servants, anyone who's in your house, who is under your authority and your care, I want them to have the mark of the covenant, because I am, I am declaring them all for myself, I'm claiming them all for myself. And we see the same practice, even in, this, even in this sermon from Peter, his very first sermon. For the promise is not to you, this is not an individual faith, this is the covenant community faith, and your children. And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. The Lord says, I want everybody. I want everybody in with this. And so we baptize to profess that faith. And it's interesting to think about it. as we look at Acts 16, the baptism of Lydia. It says, that when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Honestly, I think, I think it's, um, and so, you know, it's, as we point out before, household could have been far more than children. That's who we think of today, because not many of us have servants, uh, or any, and you know, servants. But you know, it's it was it was so the gospel was so inclusive. It was come in you know come into the community of faith. As long as you bring faith with it was the important criteria. Now. in the, now, typically, Presbyterians have respected the conscience on this point. It's a it's a practice called the liberality of Presbyterianism, which I always sends shivers up my spine when I hear it. But it's actually a very, very good practice. So, if if parents come in professing faith and are either baptized or have been baptized already, if they have children and say, you know, we don't believe, you know, we don't we don't believe it's right to apply the sign of the covenant to our children. We want to disciple them, nurture them, and then at and then bring them up at a time when they may confess. Presbyterian churches um, across the board will say, that's fine. The only important thing is disciple your children, bring them for baptism as soon as you can. The important thing. And it's, this is not because this issue doesn't matter. This issue is very, very important. And on that, Credo and Paedo-Baptist both would agree. But this is also supposed to be a sign of unity. So this is something, that, where, this is something that's been debated and contested throughout history which is grievous and frankly ironic for something that's supposed to be about coming together has been very, very divisive. So this is something that Presbyterian churches typically respect individual consciences on so that we can continue to argue <laughs> about this. And if there's one thing that I believe, it's that Christians need to learn to argue with each other and do it, do it better than we have, because typically we take everything very personally. This is important stuff. Baptism is important. We should love each other enough. We should love, not just within this church, within the whole church, to, to embrace a Baptist brother, to argue baptism for an hour and get really heated about it for Baptist brother, and then at the end, embrace them and say, thank you, you know, God is good, and then slap each other in the back and go our way until we come back and argue it again. I mean, that's so important. That's, you know, and that's when I was at Presbytery, uh, Andrew and I were at Presbytery this past week, and, you know, with Presbytery and our little our little Presbytery is distinctive for having Presbyterians and Baptists in the same presbytery, in many cases within the same church. Um, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Sometimes I, I wonder how does this even supposed to work? But I want but I also wonder if the Lord hasn't given us if the Lord could have the Lord could have given us a single verse and just have somebody, you know, just have a picture of somebody baptizing a kid in the New Testament. This whole debate would have been over. And I, think he wanted to drive, and I think he wanted to drive us to rest upon the word, upon his spirit, and labor with each other as we work through this. Uh, I think he gave us, I think he built this one in and said, I want, you, I want you to have to be patient with each other and to love one another, even when you disagree. Um, I think that's... Um, the last thing I'll say to my Credo-Baptist brethren is to say that if, if you circumcise little kids in the Old Testament, but weren't supposed to do it in the New, that would have raised a lot of questions. Somebody would have said, "Hey, wait a minute! I know we're baptizing—I know we're baptizing girls, which we didn't circumcise before, so that changed. What am I supposed to do with my kids?" And I think the silence on this issue is is, is pretty clear. That would have been—you know—that w- that could have been a whole three chapters of Romans, if that—if—if if they were—if there was a change to stop baptizing little children, then I stop applying the sign of the coming of little children. I think that's something that the early church would have had to wrestle with but instead we see throughout history children being baptized as members of the covenant. And I do not we don't see a lot of controversy on that until relatively recently. It is 1018. There are two more sections. I'm going to just refer to them quickly. Um, 28.5, do not neglect the ordinances of God. This is why Pato and Credo Baptists argue, because we don't want to do, get this wrong. But... Salvation does not depend on whether or not you've been baptized any more than it does whether or not you've had the Lord's Supper. It is the faith that we signify in these things that God works salvation through. And then finally, whenever it happens, baptism happens once. We could probably talk a long time about that because uh, there are many churches and Christian communities baptized over and over and over again. And they do it with the best of intentions. There is a desire there is a desire to proclaim faith and to, you know, proclaim faith uh, through that again. But how many times does regeneration happen in your life? Once. What does baptism signify? Regeneration. So we do it once to reflect that. And the last thing, I'll, as we close, just point out, think about every baptism you've ever seen. Uh, adult, Little baby, little kid, doesn't matter. What does the person being baptized, what do they do do in that? Look ahead to the Lord's Supper. You know, when we take the Lord's Supper, the elders come and hand the elements, the bread and the wine, into your hand, and then what do you do? You actually put it in your mouth, don't you? you? What did you do in your baptism? Nothing. Nothing. You just received it. Whether you were immersed, and so, you know, if you were immersed, somebody held your shoulders and your head, and you know, and put you under and brought you back up. If you were sprinkled, then you then you then you stood or knelt and you received water and it just, it ran over your head. You did nothing. Now, what did you do in your now? What did you do in your regeneration? Nothing. It's all of the Lord, isn't it? It's all of the Lord. So think about that whenever you see a baptism. When in it we proclaim our faith that the Lord works salvation on his own. There's nothing we contribute except the body and the person to be saved. We bring nothing but sin in that as in everything else. We bring the sins and the uncleanness and the filth to the feet of his throne, and he washes us in the blood of Christ. You've got to make this quick, Will. <laughs> yeah, I'm, just if you're I'm talking about the actual act of baptism, though, what actually happens. Even then... It's passive and receptive. But Nothing more. A uh, there was a uh, Bob and and he at that point that um, you, know, you have to are so doing something. Mm. And, you know, it's not, you know, that's one of the, the big points that formers, that it's all it's not you, God. Yeah. Thing. All right. Yeah, free will baptism is a whole nother subject, which we are way out of time for. All right, let's pray. If you have questions on this, you want to discuss more, we've touched on a lot. And please see me, or preferably some of the other elders who are a lot smarter on this, and ask them all your hard questions, though. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for the reminder uh, that whatever we believe about baptism, our assurance is in your grace and, your, uh, and the faith that you have given. So, Lord, we cling to that again today as a dying man, uh, as a drowning man clings to a life raft. We pray that as you have once saved us, you continue to sanctify us. And I pray you would give unity, unity to your church for those who profess your name and who love your son. In whose name we pray. Amen.